Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. God intends for the kingdom to continue to grow into all the earth, and he's doing it through you and me. He's doing it through the church. This has not changed. He hasn't changed. He still expects his kingdom to advance. Even in today's crazy culture, he expects his kingdom to advance. Amen. Now, I want to just give you a little definition of this word Pentecostal. Because we throw it around here, and I think we're fairly comfortable with different ideas of what it might mean. But it can mean different things to different people. So I want to go ahead and define it, how I understand it, and how I will be using it so that we can be all on the same page, all right? First of all, the Jewish community called it this celebration, Pentecost. They called it the Feast of Weeks, or the Shavuot. If Cindy were here, she could correct my pronunciation and tell me all about it because she studies that. If you ever want an interesting conversation about the Jewish festivals and the Jewish holidays and how they were fulfilled by Christian events, talk to Cindy. She studied that. She's got some really interesting insights. But it was the Feast of Weeks, and the reason was it was celebrated um, seven weeks after the second day of Passover. So they would count seven weeks after this. Passover started the second day of Passover. They'd count seven weeks, and then they would celebrate the Feast of Weeks, okay? Well, if you go to the Greek language, the word Pentecost means 50th. Well, if you go from the first day of the Pentecost, 50 days, then you have Pentecost. So Pentecost, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, it's the same festival. It's a Jewish holiday. It was actually the holiday where they would bring their first fruit offering to God, offering of the first fruits. So from the Jewish perspective, it was a, um, a uh, Jewish holiday, but a very significant Christian event happened on Pentecost, and that's what happened in Acts chapter 2 in the upper room, right? When uh, chapter 2, verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they, that's the 120 disciples, were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here you see the Christian fulfillment on the day of, of Pentecost, just like on Passover. The Passover had a Christian fulfillment because Jesus was crucified on Passover, right? So the Holy Spirit being poured out on Pentecost was a Christian fulfillment of a Jewish holiday. Now some major on the phenomena associated with the, the, the speaking in tongues and the, the Holy Spirit work and the winds and the fire, and some major on the fact that they say that that was the birthday of the church. That's when the church was born. But what is certain is this, that the mission that Jesus spoke about before he ascended, in his mind, it was not possible to complete without this thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In other words, their success on taking the kingdom into all the world was dependent on them receiving the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Look at Luke 24, 49. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He'd just given them a commission. 
And he says, but don't go out there on your own. Stay in the city. You're going to receive something. He called it clothed with power from on high that will enable you to carry out your mission. Okay? The mission is dependent on you receiving this gift of the Spirit. Don't go without it. Amen? Hey, George, it's good to see you. Good to see you. So, so far we have a Jewish holiday with a Christian fulfillment, okay? But in the early 1900s, in 1901, a revival began in America that is referred to as the Pentecostal movement. It was the largest and most significant movement to originate in the U.S. There have been other ones like the Welsh revival that evangelized the world. Rinkin talks about it a lot because that's what sent the missionaries to India. But in the U.S., the Pentecostal movement is the most significant uh, revival that happened. It was the largest and, and uh, most significant uh, movement that originated here, although it was also rooted somewhat in the holiness movement and the Methodist Wesleyan uh, tradition, too, that had already begun. Uh, the Pentecostal movement of the 1900s saw a restoration of the powerful signs and wonders, as well as baptism with the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. It then became the fastest-growing branch, if you will, of Christianity in the world, and it still is today. You don't see it maybe growing as much in the United States as you do other parts of the world, but it is still the fastest growing kind of Christianity. Why? Because it's biblical Christianity. It's Book of Acts Christianity. Uh, the Pentecostal movement of the early 1900s gave birth to Pentecostal organizations and some denominations in order to facilitate accomplishing the Great Commission. So, but to say a, a restoration of the signs and wonders is, it went mainstream, let me say like that. They had great meetings, they had powerful meetings with the restoration of these things. But the truth is you can study uh, Christian history and you can see a lot of this stuff that has been, there is a unbroken chain of supernatural things that has happened in Christians' lives from the beginning. The Christianity has always been supernatural, Amen. Amen. When the Armenians came to America in the 19, early 1900s, around the time of Azusa Street, to escape their uh, genocide and being slaughtered over there, they came here by a word of a prophet. They traveled across the country, went to the West Coast, and when they got there, they found people who spoke in tongues like they'd been doing for generations. So while it is true that it's been the Pentecostal movement started and initiated a lot of missionary movement, it's not like that nobody was speaking in tongues before Azusa Street. It's always been happening because it's always been biblical, amen? But um, the Pentecostal movement, though, nevertheless, is very forward-thinking. It's kingdom-advancing. It's into all the world. It's a power evangelism movement. If you've heard of the names like Charles Parham, William Seymour, these are the leaders in the early um, Pentecostal movement of the 1900s. You've probably heard the word uh, Azusa Street, right? That's the location where one of the early revivals uh, happened in California, Azusa Street. We talk a lot about Azusa Street. So, so far we have a Jewish holiday with a Christian fulfillment, and then we have years later in the 1900s, a movement that began in the United States that in many ways, restored the church back to the book of Acts church. So when I talk about the Pentecostal or Pentecostalism or the Pentecostal movement, I'm talking about those, 
Amen. I'm talking about the movement in the 1900s, but I'm also talking about the book of Acts Christianity. That's what I'm referring to. Make sense? So the Pentecostal, I just wanted to give a little definition on that. So Christopher Columbus jumped out in a boat and started sailing across the ocean. A few years ago, um, they brought a, um, a, a model of, I think, the Pinta, one of, one of his boats that he took. They brought it here to Knoxville, and they had it down there on a, um, what's the volunteer landing? And so we went to see it. We've got pictures. Abigail was little. Benjamin wasn't here yet. That boat is tiny. Do you remember it, Rin Kim? That was tiny. They're on these three little tiny boats out in the middle of the ocean. What in the world kept them going? Christopher Columbus was 100% convinced that the earth was round and that he could, if he could just go long enough this way, he would find land. He didn't find the land he thought he would find, but he found land and he was right about the earth being round, wasn't he? What kept Edison going with a thousand failures before he made a light bulb that worked? Thousand failures. He was convinced that he could use electricity to make light. He believed it. He was so convinced of it, he wouldn't give up. What if he had given up on the 999th time? Oh, this is too hard. <laughs> ben Franklin believed that he could get lightning, electricity from the clouds. So he did that kite experiment, which I think is crazy. <laughs> I don't know how he didn't just kill himself with that one. But he was convinced of it. You know, if you're not convinced of it, you'll turn back. You'll get out there to see and you'll say, I, I don't know. I've got to turn around. Why bother again? I've tried... You know, 900 times, I don't think that I'm going to get it this time, you know? And you stop before you get there. If you're convinced of it, you'll push through it. The Pentecostal movement in the 1900s began because people read the scriptures and they were so convinced that if they had this in the early church, I can have it too. And they settled it in their hearts and they were convinced of it and they were convicted of it and they would not back off of it until they experienced it. It was the same kind of tenacity in those people as those early explorers traveling across the ocean. Not the ones who tried to mutiny on Christopher Columbus, but Christopher Columbus who was so convinced that if he would keep going, he would find it. They were convinced in that same way and they would not stop until they had what God promised. And you know what? They got it. They got it. They didn't know anybody else who was experiencing those things. But they saw it in the Word, and then they got, first one got it, and then another, and then another. And then all of a sudden, it, it, it grew, because once you see that it can be done, come on, you know, the first person scaled Mount Everest, right? I was talking to somebody the other day, you know, one of the problems they're having on Mount Everest right now is there's so much garbage up there because of all the weekend warriors who fly over there to climb the stupid mountain. So many people climb that mountain now, it's ridiculous. They're polluting the place. But that first person who climbed it believed it could be done. Once he proved it could be done, everybody's doing it. So these people, they pressed in to receive it, even though they didn't know anybody who was doing it. They were convinced that they could experience the same thing that the people in the book of Acts could, could experience. And they pressed in until they had it. So in many ways, the Pentecostal movement was an aggressive movement. It was aggressive, and it still is. And it also honors the Word of God 
because it was the tenacity of locking into the word of God and hanging on to the word of God until they received it that kept them going. Amen? And also it's a spirit-filled movement. It honors the spirit of God because it expects the Holy Spirit to do what he says he would do in your life. It makes room for him to work. It doesn't program the spirit out of the thing. And, you know, it doesn't say, well, let's do this. And if the Holy Spirit does it good, um, if not, we can still make it happen this way. No, they were 100% dependent on the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit didn't do what he, he did, they just didn't get it done. They needed the Holy Spirit. So it was a movement that honors the Holy Spirit. And, of course, also it honors the blood of Jesus the old Pentecostals would plead the blood of Jesus. They, they respected the sacrifice of Jesus so highly. I want to leave you today with these four things that the Pentecostals were convinced of. And I want to challenge you to settle these in your heart. And let's, as a church, as a body, let's get convinced of these four things. And let's press in until we experience them. Can we do that? You'll find these in the movement, the Pentecostal movement of the 1900s. You'll also find these four things in the scriptures because it is scriptural. The assemblies of God call this their four core doctrines. Number one is salvation. Number two is baptism with the Holy Spirit. Number three is divine healing. And number four is the second coming of Christ. And I really like how the um, four square people say it because the way they say it just puts a little more emphasis on Jesus. They say, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the baptizer with the Holy Spirit, Jesus the healer, and Jesus the soon coming king. I like that. The first three are continuing ministries of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Right now at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is the Savior, Jesus is the healer, Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. The fourth one is still Jesus at the right hand of the Father, but he just hasn't returned yet. <laughs> but he is coming. He's soon coming. So go with me to Acts uh, chapter 4 and verse 12. This is um, what the early church proclaimed. They're being grilled. They're being grilled because they healed somebody, and they want to know how that, you know, every time they healed somebody in the first few chapters of the book of Acts, it seems like they would get in trouble and get arrested. So here they are in trouble and arrested again. And, and uh, what does Peter say? He says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation in no one else. There is no other. Oh, isn't that kind of exclusive? Yes, it's very exclusive. There is no other, they were bold about it. They didn't hesitate about it. It's the name of Jesus and faith in his name made this man strong and there is salvation in nobody else. Amen. Amen. Jesus. Jesus. Come on. Jesus. Hallelujah. Jesus. Listen to Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save those who save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
So see, they proclaim Jesus in Acts. Hebrews gives us a little insight. It says he's always living to make intercession for those who draw near to God. This is a continuing ongoing ministry of Jesus. You can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. Anybody saved today, they're saved by Jesus. Amen. Philippians 2.8, and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. What's that name? That name is Jesus. That name, there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. And God gave him this name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see that? God has exalted him. This is the continuing ministry of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. This is why the movement goes global. Now, I want to tell you about sin because salvation, what did Jesus come to save us from? The angel told uh, Joseph, she will bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The early Pentecostals really believed in a holiness. You know, if we would look back and in many ways it evolved into a, um, into a traditional legalistic kind of movement. It really did. And I don't want anybody to be in legalism. But the early days, I mean, they really believed in living a holy life. They actually believed that they could pray on their face before the Lord long enough that they could receive freedom from the desire to sin. They believed so much in a changed nature. And it was one of those things because they believed it, they went after it. And many of them received what they called entire sanctification. As a, they call it sanctification as a second act of grace. You know, if you don't believe it, you won't receive it. But they believed it and they pushed in and many received it. Now, you know, we teach also a thing called progressive sanctification, that once you're saved, you are in Christ, and as you go, you grow. And you grow in holiness as you grow and you learn more. And that's good too, but we've got to believe that we can, amen? Because if you don't believe that you can live a holy life, you'll never do it, right? If you don't believe that the earth is round, you're going to turn around eventually because you're going to fall off the end. You're not going to keep going, but if you believe there's a goal that if you'll just keep going, you can make it. And so holiness is important. He didn't just come. It says he will save his people from their sins. He didn't just come to declare us positionally right with him and then leave us under the power of sin, right? He did declare us positionally right with him, right? He needed to do that so he could do the work in us, but he also broke the power that sin has over us. He didn't just rescue us from the sin. He also rescued us from the effects of sin so that it should not lord over us. Look at John chapter 8, 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. He didn't come to leave us as slaves to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He does not want you to be a slave of sin, amen? He came to break the power that sin has over you. So what I wanna do is this, I wanna challenge you today to believe this, okay? Number one, Jesus the Savior. Convince yourself that he came to break the power of sin in your life. Convince yourself that he did it 
and then he, you have the ability in him to live holy so that you can live a holy life toward him. Convince yourself of that. Let's go there together as a church. Let's convince ourselves of these things. I mean, they're in our founding. We're a Pentecostal church. So these are in our founding documents, the Jesus, the Savior, holiness. Let's convince ourselves of the truth of these and not settle until we experience them fully. Amen? Yes. Amen. Number two, Jesus the baptizer. You know, the baptism with the Holy Spirit was never supposed to be a side issue. Right? It's been declared boldly even by John the Baptist before Jesus shows up on the scene. What did John the Baptist say? You find it in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, that is Jesus, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Right? You find a parallel passage if you're writing it down. You can look it up in Mark 1, 7 and 8 and Luke 3, 16. And then even the book of John, you know, the book of John is just way different than the other three, right? So it's very rare that you find one story through all four. You know, there's a few things, but this, this is in all four. Listen to what John says. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's John 1.33. So from the beginning, John the Baptist identified Jesus in his ministry as the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This has been the intention from the beginning. All that Jesus was doing and working to was to bring us to this point where he could baptize us with the Holy Spirit. We're missing something if we don't step into that. You know, and really this is one of the major themes in the book of Acts too. Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. You know, in, in the opening paragraphs of the, of the letters and the writings, you can usually find the theme of the letters somewhat. And one of the themes in the book of Acts that you see all the way through is expressed in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city. I'm sorry, Acts 1 and 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You see that contrast. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's what you see in the book of Acts when you go to those Ephesian believers and they're like, have you heard of the Holy Spirit? We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit, right? And they said, well, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism. Well, okay, then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Do you see that, that working out through the rest of the letter? John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's the ministry of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Jesus' witness, I started reading that one, it's from Luke 24, 49. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus predicted this, obviously. And um, finally, read this in Acts chapter 2, verses 32 and 33. This is Peter again. He's explaining what just happened when everybody was baptized. You know, they were making fun of this movement. They were mocking it from the beginning. They were saying they were gibberish. They were saying they were drunk. They were saying that they're crazy from the very time it happened. So I'm really, you know, I'm really kind of over people criticizing us if we do things that they don't like. 
because I don't know why we should expect it to change. They've made fun of people who've embraced this for forever from the beginning. But let's go for it anyway. I'm not too worried about them. It says, this Jesus God raised up and, all of, and uh, of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you ourselves are seeing and hearing. He's saying what you're seeing and hearing right now, the, the tongues, the people preaching in the different languages being heard and all this happening, this is Jesus. He did it. We're not doing it and we're not drunk like you're accusing us either. This is Jesus. God exalted him and he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and Jesus has poured out what you are seeing and hearing right now. Well, if Jesus pours out that same thing on us, we might expect to see the same kind of things, amen? And we also might expect to be accused of being drunk in the same way they were, amen? It can happen. I mean, I'm not trying to look for people to, you know, I think everything should be decently in an order, but uh, I, I, I don't... I, I, I need to serve one, right? I have one critic, right? You know, we don't want to unnecessarily offend people. But man, God can get, you know, he turns around 3,000 are baptized and saved that day. Okay? I mean, yeah, there was, there was a, a, a accusation and mockery, but 3,000 people were saved like that. I think God knows what he's doing. Do you? And then drop down to verse 39. It says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise is to you and to your children and to our, you know, I'm one of those who are far off. I'm not Jewish. I wasn't there in the upper room. I've come down centuries later from another country, but it's to me. The promise is to me. As many as the Lord our God shall call. Amen. Amen. So I want to challenge you with this today, to settle this in your heart and in your mind, that there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus wants to pour out on you. He's not withholding. He wants to pour it out. But if we're not convinced that he has it for us, we'll get out in the middle of the ocean somewhere and turn around and start looking for land. It's there. I promise it's there. Let's press in till we receive the fullness of it as a church. Amen? Yes. Number three. Jesus the healer. I was listening to, I told you, John Lake and um, John Alexander Dowie. Um, and this verse right here, Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with them. That verse became the key to help them open their eyes to realize that God was the healer. God was the healer. Satan was the oppressor. God was the healer. It became so clear to them that they had no problem then resisting the sickness and fighting until they saw the results that they wanted. And they had tremendous results. See, the problem is we're so confused in our theology. I don't mean you, but I mean our modern culture mixes things up so much. We, we don't know what's from God and what's from the devil sometimes, you know? We think everything that happens is, is God. And, and even that song we sang this morning, It Is Well With My Soul, I got to thinking about it, Tom. 
you know, I think that's a great song and because no matter what happens, my soul, it, it can be at peace with God, right? But some things aren't always well with my soul. <laughs> some things are an attack from the devil and I need to resist, you know what I'm saying? So take it the right way. Take the song the right way. Um, your soul can always be in a place of peace and rest in the middle of an attack. But at the same time, not everything that happens is okay. Not everything that happens is the will of God or from the hand of God. And when they realized that they were, okay, were not resisting God when they were resisting sickness, it just, the light came on for them and they started to fight. And they grew in that healing ministry. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. Look, there's the whole Trinity right there. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit all in agreement, like they always are, went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. You know, is there still an oppressor today? Then there's still a need for a healer, right? So two questions we need to settle regarding healing. One, it's a two-part question. Did Jesus heal all who came to him? Does he expect his ministry to increase or to decrease after he goes to the Father? That ought to settle it right there. As a church representing him, we should be able to get the same results that Jesus got. I feel in that. Just receive your healing right now. I feel it. I feel it working in here. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and to the ages. And the second question then is, is healing in the atonement? Because if it is, then we don't have to wonder about whether or not it's God's will to heal. We don't have to wonder if it's his will to heal any more than we have to wonder if it's his, if it's his will to save. Right? I mean, not everybody is saved, but it's not because God is not willing, right? He's not shut some out. I'm not a Calvinist. I don't believe in all that limited atonement and stuff like that. They mess up the scriptures so badly. No, Jesus came and says he died for all. One died for all. He paid the price for all of our sins. The question is, if he took care of the sickness at the same time, then also it is his will to always heal. This is what the early Pentecostals believed. This is what they believed in the book of Acts. And this is why they had the tenacity to push through until they received. And they didn't all receive. Some of them died. You read some of the stories of the missionaries in the 1900. They decided, I'm going to believe God or die. And some of them died. Um, just to be honest with you, they died. But, you know, the ones who pushed through, look what they saw. Look at the miracles that they saw constantly because they believed it and they clung on to it with that tenacity. First Timothy 2, 3, and 4, it says, um, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So it's his will for all to be saved. If that same sacrifice that allows everybody to be saved is the same one that also helps them 
uh, uh, pays for their healing, then you could say it's their desire, his desire for all to be healed. They come to a knowledge of health, healing. Amen. I love this quote from John Lake. He said this, and I want you to listen to the heart of God in this. Jesus did not heal the sick in order to coax them to become Christians. He healed them because it was his nature to heal. Isn't that good? He didn't go around healing because he was trying to coax people to become Christians. Jesus healed the sick because it was his nature to heal. When we get close to God and close to his nature and his nature starts expressing itself through us, we'll see healings deliverance is rescue because it's what the Holy Spirit does. Amen. God hasn't changed. He's still the same today. So let's settle this one. I challenge you. Let's settle this in our hearts and in our minds. Jesus is the healer. Let's not be confused thinking that we're resisting God if we're resisting a sickness because we're not. Amen. And finally, number four, Jesus, the soon coming king. Woo! The early Pentecostals, both in the book of Acts and in the Pentecostal movement, they were earnestly looking for the coming of the Lord. They weren't building a kingdom here on earth. They were working for a kingdom that was coming. They really believed that Jesus was the rightful king of the world, that he won it by conquest from the devil, and they were here to do business in his name. They were his representatives. They were his ambassadors. They were speaking for a kingdom that was coming. And they believed his return was so close. You know, those in, in, uh, when you study even the history of our denomination and you go back and you look, a lot of the things that our, our denomination has done was to help train and support missionaries that were already out on the field because they got baptized with the Holy Spirit in the Pentecostal movement and just took off and went to other countries with no support, no backing, no board, no nothing, just because they believed that Jesus was about to come back and they didn't have time to do any of that. That's how they believed that the Lord's coming was just imminent. Well, how would, you, how would your life change if you believe that Jesus really could come anytime? You know, we prepare and we live as if, you know, we're going to be here forever. But he could come tomorrow. Or after I eat lunch. He wouldn't come in the middle of it, would he? He'll come after you order before they deliver. No, I'm just <laughs> no, He could come anytime. Listen to Mark, uh, y'all, you know what? Let me look at these. Yeah, listen to Mark 14, 61 to 62. The high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Verse 62, Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. There you go. Jesus exalted to the right hand of the father. He is the soon coming king. He said, you're going to see it. Look at Psalm. I've, I've, I jotted these down, but I don't know that I put them in the computer. I'm going to flip to them. Look at Psalm 110, verse 1. Oh, yeah, I know what this is. Yeah, I couldn't remember my note. I just jotted down verses, and I didn't write what the topic was. 
uh, this is good. This is quoted in the New Testament a lot. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, okay? So Jesus goes, he's exalted to the right hand of the Father, and he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 25, it picks up on that theme. Do I have, oh, good, it's on there. First, it says, thank you. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, okay? And then go to Hebrews 10, 12 and 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God until such time that his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. We have something to do with that. Amen? Why did he say, I've given you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy? For Jesus to fulfill that, go back to that verse. For Jesus to fulfill that, for his enemies to be made a footstool under his feet, that means everybody in his body has got to be treading on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Think about that. For the, for the enemies... To be under his feet, that means they have to be under your feet because you're his body. So I'm going to challenge you to settle this in your heart and in your mind that he is coming. He is coming and we've got a job to do. Amen? Amen. So Jesus the Savior, we can live a holy life. He set us free from sin. Tom, would you guys get ready just to do a song for me? Jesus the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. There is a baptism of power and it's available for us. Jesus the healer. It's his will for you to be healed. And Jesus the soon coming king. And like I said, he expects his ministry at the right hand of the Father to increase his influence on the earth, not to decrease. Amen? Amen. So, Here's what I want to do. I just, today, I just want to do things a little different. I don't, we don't really have like an altar or anything like that, but I want to take a few moments here as we just sing a worship song. I want to lock this in to your heart. I want you to reflect on the message today, and I want you to pray about these things, and I want you to come to a place in your heart where you can settle it. And if you can't, I want you to just take some time here as we worship for a few moments and just seek the Lord about these things. Ask him to make the way clear. He, he's a great helper. He's a great leader. Amen. He'll bring you in. I mean, how many times have you prayed and I've prayed, Lord, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but help me, lead me, take me there. And he's brought me around or, or I've, I've heard something, you know, the thing is, when your heart starts demanding these things because you see them as truth, he will help you. He will send that answer. He will send a person. He will, you'll, you'll come across a ministry online or, or you'll come to church and somebody will have an answer. Or you'll meet a friend and they'll say something and the Holy Spirit, while they're speaking, will drop that right into your heart. He answers prayer, amen? So let's just take a few moments and worship. You can sing. You can pray, but just let's take a few moments and I challenge you, let's settle these in our heart. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the healer. Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is coming soon.